Hello and welcome to Law Socks Legal Loop. My name is Paige Taylor and I'm your medium publicity sec. Today is the first podcast of a three-part series on the subject of Brexit. This podcast will be presented by Tabung and will be produced by Juliet. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, what's up everybody? It's that time of the month again. It's the Law Society's very own podcast channel, The Legal Loops. I'm your host, Tabang Royds, a.k.a. Tilly Bang. You know what it do. And we have our lovely production executive, Juliet Savvy, a.k.a. Savs, right next to me. Hi, thank you so much for listening. You know what it do, you know what it is. So let's get straight into it. Today we're going to be talking about something that is not only spicing up my constitutional law module right now, but also spicing up the world politics. We're going to be talking about Brexit. I can already feel the tension in the room just rise a little bit there. Alongside us, we have Professor Ayola Solanki, Chair in the EU Law and Social Justice Department at the University of Leeds. Her areas of expertise range from EU law to anti-discrimination law and stigma. She's the founder of the Black Female Professors Forum in 2017, and she has written three different books, one published in 2011, one published in 2015, and one published in 2017. Wow, what a woman, what a professor, what a person. How are you doing today, ma'am? I'm well, thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Um, So let's just get straight into it. What is the EU? What is its function? Why is it necessary in just some general context? Okay, well that's a big question. So what is the EU? So we have to remember that the European Union was actually created as the European Economic Community in 1957 and only became the European Union in 1992 when uh, it was decided to extend the the original scope of the goals beyond the economy to more social and environmental and civil rights. So it was created in 1957 after World War II, essentially as a way to reconstruct um, Europe and promote prosperity across European countries because there was quite significant devastation across the the continent after the Second World War. And that meant that people lost not only homes, but also jobs. Factories were destroyed, industry was destroyed. There was very little scope for any country to have the wherewithal to rebuild their economy internally by themselves. So the European Economic Community was created as a means for the member states or countries that wanted to join to work together to rebuild their domestic economies through cooperation. So you spoke about the reconstruction after the World War. So obviously that's very applicable to the UK. Um, And so how did Brexit arise now? So surely that reconstruction is still in the process of being done. So it is, but, you know, we are a long way away from the aftermath of World War II. And most of us, I'm sure most of you in this room, have only ever grown up in a period of prosperity. You've never known war, you've never known want, you've never known rationing, you've uh, never known absence of electricity, you've never not been able to go to school or to university. Your parents have probably never not been able to go to work because they, their workplace no longer exists. Right? So we're not quite in the same context. So Brexit, I think, has arisen in a way because we've forgotten many of the the reasons why it was necessary in the first place. And there's perhaps a discussion to be had as to whether European integration is still necessary to promote prosperity. But in answering that question, we also have to think about some of the newer challenges that have arisen 
that member states or individual states would not be able to tackle by themselves, for example, climate change, um, for example, cross-border crime, for example, trafficking. So there, there, is still, uh, there are still reasons for integration to continue, but I think we need to re-evaluate those reasons in order to have the, um, the clear arguments for European integration. Um, I think Brexit has also happened in the UK because while we've always had a fairly difficult relationship, it's always been a, a push-me-pull-me relationship with the European Union, um, we decided not to join in 1957 because we actually thought that we had the Commonwealth and that our economic reconstruction could be based on our relationship with the countries of the Commonwealth. Well, by 1973, it was clear that, that that wasn't going to be the case, and that's why we then joined the European Union. But even then, there were strong arguments against joining the European Union. And since we have been in the European Union, those arguments have not gone away. And the, the key location for these arguments to be developed and built has been within the Conservative Party, and in particular amongst the backbenches of the Conservative Party. So it was... No surprise, perhaps, then, that it was under a Conservative government that this question was able to, to push its way to the fore so that the, the nation was asked a very an inappropriately simple question in relation to an infinitely complex entity such as the European Union. So you spoke about a lot about how the immigration policies are going to be affected in the European Union. How is it going to affect everybody else? Because, I mean, I'm a South African student. How is it going to affect me coming into the UK? So immigration was one of the reasons, of course, why many people perhaps voted in favour of, of Brexit. And it's quite a complex question because you have to think about internal immigration um, within the EU that is overseen by the free movement provisions of the treaty. So free movement for workers and free movement for citizens. But then there's the other aspect of immigration, which is the international immigration, which uh, concerns non-EU nationals coming into uh, the European Union and the UK. Now, it's only the first type of immigration concerning EU nationals that is uh, a fundamental pillar of European Union law. So the, the UK government is obliged under EU law to provide entry and residence and not to deport EU nationals, so anybody coming from one of the other 27 member states. However, those obligations don't exist in relation to international migration. There are some EU laws in that area, but that specific policy area is determined by the member states. So the poster that was used during the Brexit, during the referendum campaign, the, um, the poster with Nigel Farage and hordes of brown-skinned people saying breaking point, that was quite misleading because those people were, were asylum seekers, refugees and asylum seekers um, coming into Europe outside of the scope of the free movement rules. So it wasn't that they were entering Europe and the UK under the scope of free movement of persons, they were entering as refugees and asylum seekers under asylum rules. And asylum rules are primarily within the remit of the member states. 
So you would be subject to a very different set of rules as a non-EU national than an EU national coming to the UK within the scope of European Union law. There are some European Union rules, so there is a, a common European asylum scheme, but that is more supportive of what the member states are doing, whereas the under the free movement rules, um, the European Union law is much more binding. So another thing that people have brought up with the whole Brexit issue is how is it going to affect such fundamental constitutional principles as parliamentary sovereignty? So can you comment on that? So again, it's a huge question, and I know that there are people who are very passionate about parliamentary <laughs> sovereignty. And perhaps we all should be, because what we're really saying in parliamentary sovereignty is ensuring that the rules that are made are made by the, the people that we elect, by our representatives. So parliamentary sovereignty in the European Union, being a member of the European Union doesn't erode or dislodge parliamentary sovereignty. Parliamentary sovereignty is fundamentally necessary in order to be part of the European Union, because the basis of the European Union is a treaty, and it is only sovereign member states that can sign a treaty. So the European Union doesn't erode parliamentary sovereignty. However, in terms of providing the European Union and providing European Union law with what is necessary to achieve the aim set out in the treaty, parliamentary sovereignty is limited. And it is limited in limited spheres. So it's only limited to in those areas which, fall, which are part of European integration and to the extent necessary to achieve the goals of European integration which any member state that signs the treaty has agreed to. So parliamentary sovereignty, as I said, is fundamental to becoming a member of the European Union. But in order to achieve the goals that are agreed upon when joining the European Union, parliamentary sovereignty is limited in limited spheres. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. And finally, could you comment on the ramifications of Brexit on the Human Rights Act or human rights in general in the EU? So um, the Human Rights Act was introduced in 1998 to the phrases bring rights home. But those are rights that are in the European Convention on Human Rights, not the European Charter of Human Rights that has been created by the European Union. Our enjoyment of those convention rights will continue when the UK leaves the European Union because those rights exist separately to the European Union. So the European Convention is a legal text created by the Council of Europe, which is an organisation that predates the European Union. Now, the European Union in 2000 created its own Charter of Fundamental Rights. Those, uh, the Charter is much more extensive than the Convention. So whereas the Convention has about 14 substantive rights, the Charter has about 50. So it's a much more expansive uh, human rights document. The human rights document, uh, the, the Charter of Fundamental Rights, only applies in the member states when they are implementing European Union law. So when we leave the European Union, we will no longer be implementing European Union law 
Therefore, we will lose access to any rights and protections that are set out in that much more extensive charter of fundamental rights. So we will, we will lose some protections when we leave the European Union and we will just be reliant upon the rights in the European Convention of Human Rights. Thank you very much. I can definitely say I know a lot more about this <laughs> and, I, and a, lot, a lot more than I thought I would. So thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been a lovely guest. And thank you for taking up the time from your day. To My be with pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Hi guys, it's Paige. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. I'm looking forward to the second part series, which will feature a debate between two lecturers. If you guys have any questions, please feel free to email me. My email is page.taylor.leeslawsock at gmail.com. And thank you guys for listening to Law Socks Legal Loop.